Folks, take it from me, NBA legend Bill Walton. Like all great experiments in American history, the Three and D Love podcast will revolutionize your life. Welcome to the Three and D Love NBA podcast. Thanks for joining us, and I'm your host, Michael Eaney. We're joined, as always, by the brother, Ryan Eaney, and, of course, our namesake, the venerable D-Love, Derek Lovegren. Here we go. Hello, 3 and D-Love NBA podcast listeners. Today, Michael and I are joined by a special guest. Jake Fisher is a writer who covers the NBA. You can read him in Bleacher Report, GQ, and other outlets. He is the author of Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tinking Era Changed the League Forever. It will be available March, excuse me, May 4th. 2021, wherever books are sold. You can also check out his new Built to Lose Substack at builttolosesubstack.com. Welcome, Jake. Thank you guys for the introduction. Appreciate it. Definitely. So tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book. You I mean, you really hit on an important era in the league, uh, a really strong confluence of events. It's very richly reported. Um, you talked to kind of all of the key people involved. Um, yeah, can you talk, tell us a little bit how it started and kind of how you came up with the book? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a long answer, a medium answer, and a short answer. So I'll try to find one between short and medium. <laughs> it's a podcast, Jake. You can, you can go along if you want to. That's true. That's true. Um, the, the genesis of the book was that, and I'm from Philadelphia. I went to Sixers games as a kid, was a diehard fan. And then as I started covering the league, like I, I entered the NBA ecosystem as a quote-unquote professional. I, I was an intern at Slam Magazine at the time. But I was actually covering the league for the first time in an official capacity right at the, at the 2013 draft, just when Sam Hankey traded Drew Holiday for New, uh, for, uh, to New Orleans for uh, Neurons Noel, and the same night that Boston moved off of KG and Paul Pierce. And, you know, the NBA was all up in arms about how, you know, these teams were rebuilding, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, as being a young person from Philly covering the league at that time, there's a big divide in Philadelphia, in the country, in the NBA ecosystem where you were like either an analytics fan and, and pro tanking, or you thought it was like a whole travesty for the league and it was something to throw up your arms at and really, you know, take a knife into and, and really, you know, over-evaluate and, and criticize. So I, I wrote it in, in, in the introduction, which I think you guys saw in the version you sent. Like to me, this book's kind of like an ode to kind of navigating the NBA landscape as a young reporter at the time. And it really helped like being in the eye of that storm, being from Philly, being in Boston at during school, I went to Northeastern covering those two teams. It really gave me a perspective of like, this is how, how, how you're supposed to handle being in the middle. I wasn't on the team or, you know, like, and no one really affiliates me personally with, with that era, I mean, maybe they will now. Hopefully they will now. <laughs> Definitely. So in the locker rooms every night, ta- having these discussions that ended up turning into the book for seven straight years. So that's kind of how it all started. It, it, do you do you think that going forward we'll ever see something like that confluence of events that you cover in the book, starting with draft night, Sam Hinkie, Danny Ainge making the big trade, um, all those things coming together. Obviously there's been movement against it, you know, mm-hmm. as you as you describe in the book, um, I mean, is, is that sort of is that just a special time, a historical artifact that you've captured and that we'll sort of never see it again? Or do you think 
is is that always going to be part of the NBA in terms of trying to acquire top talent through you know losing on purpose to some level? You know, in the book we we've deemed it the tanking era, right? And for me, that's from 2012 to about 2016, and it kind of starts. The book starts on draft night of 2013. We really like bring you right to Nerlens Noel's draft table in Brooklyn as he's falling down the board and the panic setting in with his team. Um, <laughs> and, Co- and Coach Calipari, <laughs> getting as, as annoying as possible. It's a great, it's a great intro. It's a great story. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it started, I think, a year before, honestly, because everything that happened that we just talked about in the 2013 draft, I think, was a reaction to the 2012-14 trade with Andrew Bynum and Dwight Howard with Orlando, because that's where you really see, like, Rob Hennigan was the first, before Sam Hinkie, the first, like, descendant of an analytical-minded executive to get hired in Orlando. He's the one who exacted the Dwight Howard trade. And through that, you know, we tie in Philly and L.A. That trade kind of stems from Philly coming close to Boston in the 2012 conference final. We're getting to... But, you know, in the book, it makes a lot of sense. So all those teams kind of start tanking in 2012 because these analytical-minded guys, Rob Hennigan in Orlando, Sam Hinkie in Philadelphia, the Suns hire Ryan McDonough from that Boston front office to run Phoenix. Sacramento even brings Pete D'Alessandro from Denver. The Cavs, after they lost LeBron, they have David Griffin, who's like making analytics um, models on the computer in Cleveland. Um, <laughs> all that to 2016. And then in 2017, we've get um, a vote that ends up, you know, changing the lottery rules forever. That first happened in 2019, and I really think we're seeing the results now. The, you can get the worst record in the league, and that your best chance at getting the number one pick is something like 14% now. Right. You should probably look that up. Uh, yeah. I don't remember it. I wrote the but book it, a long time ago. Um, but down from 25%, right? I mean, that was what it was when Hinky yeah. and everyone was saying, let's let's do it this way. Exactly. And even in the 2016 draft, even after Hinky had left, because of a trade where they had um, a swap right with the Kings, they actually had a 26.9% chance, I believe, at getting that number one pick in, in, in 2016, which at the time was being touted as the highest percentage odds ever. Um, so it's just not a direct, as direct a route anymore, which is what the league wanted. And we're seeing it now, I think, where even like Oklahoma City Thunder were supposed to be this terrible team this year, right? All over again. Like they traded off Russell Westbrook. They traded off Paul George. They traded Chris Paul again. And they got back for Russell Westbrook. And they're still, you know, in the mix of the playoff race. Not really. Like they're still on the outskirts of that 10 team playing tournament out West, but they're not, you know, just fumbling game after they do have young players kind of similar to what Philly was doing, but they're not, there really isn't a team right now. That's like intentionally trying to be bad year after year to build through the draft. I think. Yeah, that's an amazing transition. I mean, wh- what do you see as, cause you obviously you wrote the book, you follow the league, you're writing about the league kind of throughout to, and currently do, you know, what, what is the sort of next move? for GMs. I mean, is it, what's, what's the analytically mind, the progressive GM supposed to do when they, like you said, the NBA and the league sort of took this one tool out yeah. of the tool belt. Like if Sam Hinkie was announced, I guess we kind of have it. Daryl Morey just got announced as the Sixers GM, but if these type of GMs come in now, like what, what do you, what's, what's left for them to focus on or pursue if that's taken away from them? I think what, what I've seen and 
you know, the merit of this kind of goes back and forth depending on who you talk to. But it seems like teams are really invested now in building culture and, and, and creating these these glamorous practice facilities, which actually Hinky and, and the Celtics um, in Boston, they were, they were kind of ahead of the curve on too. And, and you talk, I, was talk, I did a whole thing with David Griffin in 2019 for Sports Illustrated right after they drafted Zion. And his whole approach at that time was talking about building a family. And, you know, the, the tanking era was in a response to also LeBron and, and the Miami Heat becoming the super team in Miami, right? A lot of teams in the East and, and across the league thought, you know what, this team was a juggernaut. We can't beat them anyway. We might as well be bad on purpose now, get guys like Joel Embiid in the draft. And by the time he's ready to be a contender – to be a champion, like kind of what we're saying in Philadelphia at this moment, maybe LeBron will be on the backside of his prime. The joke's on everyone. LeBron's still kind of in prime. <laughs> Never, that was, yeah. That was the calculus at the time. And also, so, stemming from that, you know, LeBron left Cleveland to go to Miami, right? That was where he was from. Like, that was his hometown, and he still left. So there's been an emphasis now. I mean, we're seeing it in, in Minnesota right now. The Timberwolves, for, there are a lot of reasons behind firing Ryan Saunders and bringing on Chris Finch. But the main one that underscored all of that is that Carl, Carl Anthony Towns, the Timberwolves executives don't, don't want me to talk about this right now, but Carl Anthony Towns is reaching for agency in 2024. And the clock yeah. is already ticking on that, just like it was with Anthony Davis in New Orleans, just like it is with Bradley Beal in Washington right now, just like it was with LeBron in Miami and Cleveland before him. So tanking is as much tied in. It's the, it's the bottom of this cycle or maybe not the bottom or it's one pole of this never ending cycle of you teams draft the player. They do whatever they can to build around him and keep him happy and risk losing him or trading him before he, he walks out the door in free agency and going to the repo all over again. So I think the analytical minded teams are doing whatever they can now to create these stable, fluent, you know, progressing, organisms around these players around that heartbeat to keep them in in uh, in town and happy and, and, and building around them for years to come i will say what does it say about the timberwolves franchise that they're simultaneously in superstar retention mode and i think maybe in tanking mode all at the same time <laughs> <laughs> it says a lot which is why which, which is what leads you to firing your coach and hiring an assistant from a different team in the middle of the season right <laughs> I, I know i know the the, the interim title was uh, never got comfortable in uh in minnesota this year yeah and chris Finch is an excellent coach and he is someone who i believe in long term there it just there's a lot of complications when you build a team around a player. We see it. We've seen it across the league, across recent history. When, when you're building a team around a player who doesn't do it on both sides of the ball and is pretty bad on one side of the ball at defense, it's it's a challenge. And that's what the Timberwolves currently face with Carl Anthony Towns. I'm curious, Jake. You know, you you mentioned the revised lottery odds. I, I was looking them up as we were talking. It. You know, the top three seeds now, or the worst three seeds, I guess, is, is a 14% chance. And then there's six seeds that have a 9% greater chance, right? Mm-hmm. So so you have this this new parity that you sort of referenced. Yeah. I mean, how do you think that's impacted some of these superstar trades over the last few years where the, the, the haul for these players like Paul George or Anthony Davis – has this continued to skyrocket where, where these teams that are trading these players are basically like, give me everything you got and then some yeah. more, right? I mean, that's what Sam Presti did 
in, in trading Paul George. And I just think that's something that, you know, we're, we're not very far from Kawhi getting traded for Jakob Pertl, a first round pick and DeMar DeRozan. Right. I mean, that's not that long ago. And then all of a sudden there's these, these Kings ransoms being traded for these other players. I, I can't help but imagine that's got to be related to tanking being sort of taken out of the quiver of these general managers. Yeah, it's a great point. And if you really want to look at it specifically, like, like bring a razor to it, the fourth that there's a now a fourth lottery draw lottery drawing too, right? Like at first it was just those three spots, and then after that, from four on down, everyone got slated through, you know, descending order for the standings. Now there's an extra four slot, and teams are tanking now at the end of the season. Teams who were originally supposed to be in the playoff picture to get better odds in that muck that now have nine percent, you know, better like you were talking about, Michael. And in 2019, the very first year, the teams that won the lottery, New Orleans number one and Memphis number two, they were like that. They were both, I mean, the Grizzlies that season heading into 2018-19 had playoff expectations. And then Marcus All had a lot of injuries. Mike Conley had injuries and they traded Mark to um, Toronto and they benched Conley and they rested players and they jumped up to like seven and they jumped from seven to two. New Orleans is the same thing. They were, they were benching Anthony Davis because they didn't want him to get hurt. And the Pelicans, not only do they just go up to number one, the Lakers were benching LeBron because he had some like hamstring injury or something, quote unquote. They move all the way up to nine and the nine seed jumps all the way up to four. And that fourth lottery spot would never have been a lottery spot before him. Wow. In that number four pick ended up going back to New Orleans to get Anthony Davis. Wow. That's a great point. Yeah. So It all, it all comes together. It feels like it's all, it's a timely book, Jake. It's all, it's all, it's all coming together. I, just go back to the T-Wolves for a little bit. Um, you know, just with that move, obviously, Krentz Fanchik, you said, is a highly respected coach, goes, you know, way back to the Rockets um, with their, with their general manager. But David Vanderpool, obviously it's the associate head coach there, mm-hmm. you know, long history in Portland, um, you know, just a very highly respected coach. I think he was a candidate for some of the jobs you were writing about in the book, you know, during yeah. the tanking era, kind of where, where do you see, what do you, what, what's your sort of sense of that? Um, which is just a comfort coach, sorry, comfort choice as a coach in Finch. Um, does Vanderpool continue to be a strong candidate? Like we're just curious. I mean, we're both from the Northwest. We actually had a, Kind sure. of random encounter with Vanderpool playing pickup basketball one time. He's an oh, he's nice. an incredible player um, and, a, and, a, and a really you know charismatic guy. So just curious what your thoughts are on him. Yeah, I think so you mentioned him being a candidate for the Philly job in 2013. I I I don't know if I was specifically clear in the book about him in particular, but I talked about it with Lloyd Pierce what Philly was doing at that time. Part of Hanky's process in general, not to use the capital P process. Um, but part of his approach was to cast a super wide net on every decision, right? Collect as much information as possible and then come up to your conclusions. So they were trying to pull as many assistants, assistant coaches, you know, player development guys, whatever, at that time, just to try to get to meet as many people as possible. It's, it's like he didn't view their opening as like a way to steal trade secrets from other teams. That's what a lot of teams do. They want to talk about how do you run your practice? What's your strategy? Yada, yada, yada. Sam wanted to meet as many people as he could. And David Vanderpool was one of those people. He's been a guy that teams have focused on for a while, young, energetic. I mean, you see it on Twitter every day whenever there's an opening now. He's Damian Lillard's like, Damian Lillard's his champion, right? Right. right. And he's got got a lot of credit for working with Dame and CJ McConnell in Portland. 
I want to give a shout out to a friend of mine, Phil Beckner's Dame's uh, trainer, and he's really helped Dame a lot as well. But Vanderpool gets a lot of that credit, and he's someone players respect. And we talked about you know building culture to keep these guys happy. Having a young coach who also looks like you, right? I mean, it, it helps. I mean, it, it helps to be in the trenches with you know having a young black head coach coaching these young black players. Like the league is overwhelmingly black, correct? So that 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 is, that is only. Not, not to say that that's a tool in his tool chest, but it is. I mean, it, it's a way to connect with these people and these players. And that's a huge, huge facet of the coaching job in this league right now. You have to be able to, to relate to, to talk to, to build rapport and relationships and trust with these players. And that's what I think Vanderpool ultimately really has down. That's why he's such a candidate. He's a guy that players buy into, love working with. I mean, we've seen it with Dame. The questions I think with him at the – ownership level and like actually his candidacy is whether he really can, you know, organize a full team day in and day out. It's a, it's a, it's a couple, there's, there's some saying that like it's only 18 inches or something that separates the first chair on the bench from the head coaching chair, but it's a whole lot more than that. And um, it's, it's tough for anybody to do. And, and, and I think that's not to say David Vanderpool can't do it. I, I have no idea if he can or not. I'm not privy to seeing that. Um, but I think that's part of why he hasn't quite gotten there yet. But I do think he will. I think he'll get his opportunity at some point. That's great. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great reading about that Sixers coaching search that ends up with Brett Brown. And you, you said Lloyd Pierce, Kenny Atkins, all these guys that now we know that then they were sort of – they were known in the league, I'm sure, but to the broader fan base weren't as known. So that's a really interesting process. Can, speaking of the process, I guess lower P and capital P, yeah, can you tell us about your – you know, just – you said you, you grew up in Philly. You've covered the Sixers. Um, you're there during Hinky's time. I mean, can you just give us, I mean, a, a few anecdotes of your own experience with that and the ups and downs when I mean, you cover it in the book, um, I guess. And then just how you're feeling now about the Sixers, just from a, you know, perspective yeah. with Daryl Morey coming back. I mean, that's so fascinating for, uh, you know, kind of real Sixers people who are deep in the process to see that come full circle. For sure. I mean, from that time I was, I was caught the team for Liberty Ballers, which is, which is still the, the Sixers blog for SB Nation. They still do a good job. Um, but I, we felt like at that moment we were covering something that was a footnote of NBA history. And I still think that in hindsight, I mean, I wrote a book about it. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was a moment, you, it was palpable. And um, I remember, before, I, I think I wrote about it in the book, in, like, in the book proper. It's definitely in the prologue um, where before the 2014 lottery, like that was the year right 2014 was Wiggins Embiid Jabari Parker like that was supposed to be the, the next you know the 2003 draft reincarnate right right and the rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast my friend Spike Askin and Mike Levin Mike Levin was the editor at Liberty Bars at the time we, they had 500 people at this bar jumping up and down <laughs> as they revealed every pick wasn't Philly right um and at that time I was already I knew it was like that's kind of when I realized this is something that needs to be written about and documented as like, you know, a real epoch of history. Um, but I didn't know it was going to be a book at that time. And then I was still definitely, I had my foot in the fandom pool, I think, at that moment a little bit too. But I remember at 20, in 2015, I was at the draft in, in Barclays Center in Brooklyn when they took Jalil Okafor number three, who by all accounts was the most anti-hinky player, right? He was big, he was slow, he didn't shoot threes. He, he graded out kind of well metrically because he was – 
so dominant scoring inside in college, but he just wasn't the modern type player that we've now. I mean, look at it. He's not really, he's on the Pistons right now. I don't know if you guys even knew that, right? Like he's, he's a, he hardly yeah, ever played. Yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember when, when he got picked, my first reaction was I just shrugged and I was like, he's probably the best player available. They can like, you know, trade him later on. And that's when I knew that I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't a fan anymore. And I was kind of just reacting to it rather than having a response. And it's like right now it's, it's amazing to watch what they're doing. I mean, Embiid, I think is the unquestioned MVP. And there's, there's a lot of people that I know in the organization who have stuck around from the Brett Brown tenure from Sam tenure, who I consider, you know, friends and colleagues who I'm happy for personally and professionally. But like at the end of the day, like I tell my friends and my family all the time, my rooting interests lie with whatever helps, you know, me make money and have yeah. my story do well. Tell a story. You want to tell a story. <laughs> exactly. Which kind of funnily enough, like at the Sixers won the title this year, right, a couple months after my book comes out. That would be pretty nice. So maybe that I will be really great. <laughs> you, know, you know, the Lakers won it last year, and there's a whole segment of the book about how they're like the independent variable of this tanking era, right? Because just as Boston moved on from Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce, like the Lakers adamantly refused to rebuild. They did not move on from Kobe. And because of that, they ended up getting LeBron in 2018 in free agency. But I really think from the conversations I have with people, I think they could have signed both Carmelo and LeBron in 2014 if they kept Kobe's salary low and had two max contracts available in the summer of 2014 when LeBron went back to, uh, or yeah, when LeBron went back to Cleveland, um, and, and and because they refused to rebuild and clear the salary sheet, and clear that salary sheet, they signed Kobe to that Godfather two-year, forty-eight and a half million dollar contract extension and muddied their books. And they ended up going on four years of being the, one of the worst teams in the league. They picked two, three straight years. I think it all stems back from them refusing to tank. But sure enough, because they're the Lakers, right, they're not Philly or OKC or Orlando or Phoenix. It doesn't matter because they got the right. problem, right? And they're fine. But that, that in itself is the reason why tanking is important and why rebuilding through the draft is important. No matter how bad the Lakers were, they still got LeBron. So how do you right. That, you have to be bad and rebuild to the draft. Yeah, it's the exception that proves the rule. Uh, that's a great point. Do you, in, in looking at these different teams that you focus on, like you said, the Lakers, Sixers, Celtics, um, Suns, Kings, Magic. I mean, you talk about, I mean, across the board. Covers a lot. <laughs> no, but no, but it's, it's like, but I think that's what's it's this critical mass of teams that are going through different variations of the same thing at the same time, and I think yeah. it's something that you know for us and our listeners as NBA fans, we all like track closely, but like it's almost till you take a step back and you kind of lead us through the story and and dig into it, you kind of see it all coming together. But I was just curious your perspective how how ownership plays a role yeah. in the different ownership groups. Cause, cause it's, cause sometimes when, you know, from the outside looking in, when you see, you know, Vivek, the owner in Sacramento, he hires a analytically inclined general manager. And then eventually he goes back and he, you know, brings in, you know, brings in Vladi Divots eventually. And then in Philadelphia, they, as you know better than anyone, they had Hanky and then they go to Colangelo, you know. But even when they were, your book notes, when they were hiring Hanky, they were also looking at some old school GM. I, mean, I think Jeff Bauer, you know, the old Hornets yeah. or Pelicans Jeff, GM. And so it was that job, hands down. Jeff Bauer thought he had that job in the bag. Yeah. So it's just like, it's just, how, how do these owners, even these sort of new school owners, you know, like the hedge fund or PE yeah. guys or the tech guys, like what's their role in this and kind of how, how does that relationship between them and their general managers work? 
I think you I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I wrote about this in the Washington Post, I think two years ago now. Um, the, the the more we've seen head fun and techie guys come over and take take these teams, um, we're, we've seen it extrapolate into the front office regime where like titles now matter, right? Like president of basketball operations or executive vice president or you know liaison to whatever. Like these things, these titles. It was just, you were just a general manager beforehand, right? That was the guy, and now we're seeing these you know, superfluous titles to try to keep, because in the NBA, you can't really get hired away from another team unless it's like a real tangible elevation. So like teams are doing all this weird wonky stuff now to have your title be something so that other teams can't come poach you. Like it really is a real thing how these hedge fund, these new money uh, owners have come into the league. And I'm writing about it for Bleach Report today. Like Tillman Pertita now owns the Rockets and, you know, the Rockets are sitting at an, inflection point where they could they could rebuild and, and they could fire sell all these guys they have right now they're the third worst team in the league they're on a 13 game losing streak but there's questions whether Fertitta will be willing to rebuild like that right and I think at the time a lot of owners the other thing that, that we have to keep in mind that I didn't it was it was, it was a bigger part of the first draft of the book and let me kind of cut it but the um the lockout in 2011 really set the tie for a lot of this too because owners knew that this big TV deal was coming into play and they wanted help. They wanted the Supermax extension to keep these guys in, in, in their cities to stop them from jumping around. And I think, I think those owners got convinced by these analytical minded executives that to get these guys and, and to like, to get LeBron to come to Miami, you need to draft the Dwayne Wade first. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about assets and appreciating value and, you know, long-term, you know, Sam, Yankee was speaking the language of these hedge fund guys, right? And I think same with Pete, Pete Alessandro was a big time lawyer before he um, got into the sports right. sports agency world. Um, Ryan McDonough like worked his way up from the video room in Boston, but he he first got that job because he had a, um, a mutual contact with Boston's ownership. So like all these guys, I mean Rob Hennigan w- went to Emerson. And like uh, with Presty, yeah, 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 behind yeah. Presty, yeah, yeah. And by all accounts, it's like this whiz kid, and like I never, I never got to talk to him for the book, um, as I wrote in it. But um, you know, by all accounts, just like a super impressive guy who can really, you know, lay out. The, I mean, it, it 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 sounds kind of silly when you like. I always tell people when you look behind the curtain in the NBA, a lot of what happens is what you think happens. It's just a GM with a PowerPoint going over his plan in, an, in, a, in a meeting, right? But <laughs> that's what it was. And, and at the end of the day, there were a lot of owners who were all of a sudden ready to make this gamble because like we, thought, we talked about earlier, they weren't beating LeBron anyway. So they might as well take a few years um, hurt in their wallet to ultimately have a bigger lottery ticket, pun intended, for a couple years down the line. Well, I'm curious, Jake. I mean, obviously, the end of Hinky had a lot of different factors playing in there. I mean, my biggest theory was ultimately, you know, when there's effectively 30 governors, right, 30 rich dudes that kind of look around and go, hey, we're running this league together. You know, what role in your mind does basically a bunch of rich white guys, basically peers of, of the Sixers ownership group sort of looking around going, Hey, you're making a mockery of our league. Knock yeah. it off. I mean, how much of that played into versus some of own Hinky's own quirks as a human being, his, his, 
inability to sort of relate to the press or to his own team or really focus on culture, something you mentioned earlier. I mean, what, what do you think played to the sort of the downfall of the process era Sixers? But I think those are the two factors, but I think it's a chicken and an egg type theory where the chicken, I think, is Hinky's response to the media. And I think the egg is the owners complaining. And I think if Sam, and I think he would admit it too, I think if Sam went back from the beginning and was more transparent, I mean, he wasn't, I forget, actually scratch that. He was very transparent. Like he didn't say we are tanking. We're going to be one of the worst teams ever. But he talked about patience and having the longest view in the room and all that type of stuff. And I think he's said during the introductory press conference, like this, this is not going to be for the faint of heart. Um, but he would then go in a bunker and he wouldn't talk again until the trade deadline after the draft. And he was very available um, to anyone really in his like world. Like if you were, if you were an NBA reporter, media person, whatever, and you asked him to talk, he was happy to talk to anybody off the record. And that made a lot of the local beat writers and the national media upset too, because like a lot of people, they need someone on the record for their job. Like they're not like me where I, a lot of my work is feature reporting and I don't need to have like the story of the day. I need to have a story that's more of like a narrative arc, et cetera, a trend, whatever. If you're a beat writer for a team and you need to explain to your bosses what's happening right now, like you need that guy to be accessible to you. And that started in Philly. It bled out nationally. And then at the same time, like you talked about with when that team went on the road, I mean, they were playing in empty arenas and, and, we saw it in 2014 when there was the original lottery reform conversation. There was a lot of teams, a lot of momentum trying to push it, but there was still the OKCs and Philly and other smaller markets who were like, we need this draft or else we will not be able to survive. And then by 2017, when they had this um, voting again, um, it was after Hinky got let go. It was after Ryan, uh, Rob Hennigan, I think, was gone too. Um, after P.T. Alessandro was gone. Um, but, you know, the effects of their era was still being deliberated and, and talked about in 2017. By that point in time, everyone had swung in, in favor of ownership and, and, and swung in favor of the league. And and oh, oh, by, by, by ownership, I mean, like, the Board of Governors really was, like, they were all on board with lottery reform by that point in time. And I think that was because the, the chorus of, of, of naysayers and the chorus of people who were upset got louder and louder and louder. And that also did play a huge factor in Sam's ouster because, you know, uh, Adam Silver's root, Adam Silver's college roommate is someone who were, was on the board of, uh, of Josh Harris's um, big fun Apollo capital. And uh, they, they met through mutual friends, which I'm pretty sure is him. And uh, it was described to me as mutual friends. So I couldn't really like confirm who connected it. But that's <laughs> and, you know, basically, they had mutual interests like Philly now at that point in 2015, 2016, like they just didn't have the ownership group just like no longer had the stomach to, to deal with all the scrutiny that they were getting, which I think would have been better and would have been less if Sam was talking more. That's that chicken and the egg type thing. Sorry that I rambled so long. Um, but at the end of the day, they ended up definitely getting the pressure to move on from him. And I do think that I do think that that Sixers ownership was ready to move on from Sam because they were, as I wrote about it in the book and it's been, it's been come out publicly. I think they were trying to pitch Sam on working with 
another executive, kind of like a co-GM type experience, which never happened in the NBA ever. <laughs> but they were trying to do that for months. So I don't think they necessarily were trying to force Sam out. But then it became pretty clear that that, that guy really was Brian Colangelo. That, that they, were, they were messaging it to Sam for a while, like they were going to be working in tandem with him to find some guy. Like Danny Ferry was the other name that really was being brought up as someone who could work with Sam. And it just became clear, like, you don't really want me to be working with someone. You want someone to be, like, number one over me, to be the public guy who can, like, talk and I'll do the behind-the-scenes thing. That just wasn't going to fly. So that's my long, rambling answer that uh, I think it's both. <laughs> now, that's, that is uh, – I mean, it's just a fascinating story, and you, you tell it so well just from, you know, covering it and living in it. Um one other piece that I really appreciated, a piece of the story you tell that I really appreciated, uh, was just about the role of agents. Mm-hmm. Um, you start with that just brilliant anecdote and story from the draft in Nerland, I won't, I won't blow it, but it's a great, one of the great introductions to the, the whole story of the era. But, you know, kind of, can you tell us a little bit about kind of the, the current role of agents in the league, how you've seen it change um, as, um you know, over the time you've covered the league, um, kind of where the influence is, kind of how that can play out. Um, you know, if it's sort of in, you know, I know one criticism of Hinky as well, which you talk about is like his his relationships with players or agents was a problem. Yeah. Um, but just, yeah, any thoughts you have on that would be great. Yeah, I, I think the agents have gotten more powerful as the players got more powerful, right? I mean, it makes sense. And it's, it starts it starts in the draft too because like we saw with Nerlens, a big reason why Nerlens fell from number one to number six was not just because he tore his ACL, it was because his representation did not want him meeting with anybody outside the top two picks. And you know that that third pick in in 2013, Washington was was always going to take out a Porter. That was pretty well known around the league. But you get to number four with Charlotte, and you get to number five with Phoenix, and um. Andy Miller, his agent at the time, and the rest of that representation team just refused to let Noel go down to those two spots because they didn't want it to message like he would potentially be available, right? That, that kind of hurts your player's value. And it happens across the league now. I mean, agents are talking to teams every single day, trying to put their player in the best position possible. That's what their job is. And they have more and more say now because players make more money than ever before. Like Rudy Gobert is about to be making like $40 million at, at, at some point in the next couple of years. And that's a number that is so astronomical for someone who, you know, isn't theoretically your, your, your typical, you know, star player. Right? The last pick in the all-star game. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But these guys can take a one-year deal somewhere or a one plus one, like LeBron and Kevin Durant kept doing in Cleveland and Golden State. And they can, they're going to be making so much money to them. It really doesn't matter where they're going to play that much anymore versus who they're going to be playing with and what their chances are at winning a title. And because of that, agents now have more power than ever because they can just say, do this, do that for my guy. And, you know, it's also like it's consolidated to the point where the, the top agents across the league, the top players across the league, there's, there's a small cohort of, of both. And, if you like, let's like take Jeff Schwartz from Excel, for example, like he has so many guys. And when you're negotiating a buyout, let's say for Andre Drummond in Cleveland, you know, you're also keeping in mind 
in that he has 50 other top players and you need to be teams. They don't cower to these guys, but they're very considerate of keeping their relationships in mind with who they have down the pipeline and who they're going to be representing in free agency. And that, that, that dynamic was always at play, but I think it's even more so now in, in favor of the agents because the second that agent calls calls all that phone number to the general manager and says, my guy wants to be traded. That can, that can really hold the power over that executive's job security moving forward. And that never really, it, it was always the same. The superstar, like Alan Iverson requested trade back in 2006, you know? Right. But it doesn't have the same, doesn't have the same level of punch as it does now because like that player will do whatever he can now to get out versus it wasn't yeah. as, it wasn't as ubiquitous back then, and these guys just have so much leverage because of how much money they're making. Yeah, he, you could always go full hardened, I guess, right? If you really, if you really want to get out, as we saw this year. And uh, in, the, in the draft, like we see it most of medical information and visits. Like this, this past year, um, I'm trying to remember the top of the draft, but uh, I don't know. I no, mean, but, no, but the, the, the Nerland story. I mean, again, that was the part yeah. for me that was just so illuminating. Because I mean, you, yeah. it was such a great draft to to do, right? I mean, it's like the Yana, it's like you have all these different factors going on. You're yeah. talking about the different players. And, uh, and, just, and, and these medical info only went to four teams, I think. Right. Yeah, like you said, visits and medical information. And it, it makes sense, right? I mean, if 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 you want to draft someone and they say, well, my players don't want to go there, and so he's not going to ever talk to you directly, and we're not going to actually yep. give you the details about his medical history. <laughs> it's like that's a pretty strong, that's a pretty strong, um, you know, push against picking that player. And then when when you see like you talked a little bit about you know there I think with Giannis and the Hawks and how close they came to getting him, and you know mm-hmm. it, was, it was like you know we'll promise you at this spot can you just stop working out go quiet like if you're an agent is it just when there's a pro you hear that there's a promise made or something is it really the agents trying to think through like okay where's the best place for my guy to go and play and be successful and so if i get a promise at this place i like even if it's a little lower that might be what i accept or kind of how does that dynamic play it's really fascinating yeah i think number one the agent's doing what the client wants best so let's say that, like a lot of times it's really simple. A client just wants to go as high as possible. So if that's the case, then it's the agent's job to get that guy as high as possible. You know, that, that means the higher you get picked in the draft, the more guaranteed money you get, whatever. But if a player wants more playing time or if they want to be in a certain situation, like in the book, I, I don't think this has ever been reported, but in the book or reporting the book, I found out in 2015, Devin Booker refused to work out for the Utah Jazz at number 12. He just didn't want to play in Utah. And I asked him why. He was like, it's Utah. <laughs> So, like, the Jazz still could have picked him number 12, but they did it because they didn't want to risk – I mean, the number 12 pick is, isn't the number one pick, but they didn't want to risk using it on a guy who was going to do whatever he could to then not be there. And Nick Stauskas in Sacramento in 2014, like, he was supposed to be considered, like, the next Clay Thompson by a lot of people. He was a really, really highly touted player, and he did not want to go to Sacramento. The Kings, though, took him. And from the from the moment he walked in the door, Mark Barlstein is, to, in my opinion, the best agent in the game right now. He was doing whatever he could to get Nick Stauskas out of Sacramento from the get-go. And Stauskas even told players, like, I'm not going to be here by Christmas. This was a rookie, you know? So that happened. But also, I, I, I do 
think that um, a lot of the agents want to put their guys in the best role because they want to set these guys up for their next agents are always setting their players up for the next contract. And no matter where you go, it doesn't really matter if, if, if there's someone standing in your way and like, look at even Lonzo ball. He's got a starting job in new Orleans. He is the point guard on that team. Yet there's still questions whether he's going to be paid and restricted free agents this year. Right? So a lot of agents want to put their guy in a position where he's going to be able to have a clear path to grow into that player who, who will be able to command a max salary after that rookie contract expires. Got it. Well, I do think it is fascinating, the agent piece. I mean, you you hit on Noel and his journey through the draft, and he's obviously changed agents, I think, a couple times, including Man, that yeah. crazy story with Dallas where he gets traded. He's still... Yeah. You know, he's still tantalizing, I think, at that point. Uh, and pretty quickly, it went from having what was reported, I think, is like a four-year, $70 million extension offer to basically taking like a one-plus-one in Oklahoma City and now being relegated to like just a backup center for the rest of his career. I mean, it's just it's crazy the turns that some of these things these take where players, I think, oftentimes, oh, the money's always going to be there. And it turns out sometimes it's not. Yeah, and I think that's reflective. Nerlens' journey particularly is reflective of how analytics have also changed the league where you know, big guys don't really have the same value as they did. And if you're not a Joel Embiid or a Jokic or a Carl Anthony Towns, you know, you're tip- if you're playing center in the NBA, you're probably just a rim-running five and a, and a rim protector. And Nerlens was got on the free agent market for very minimal money this year, and now he's automatically plug-and-play Mitchell Robinson gets hurt, and he's the Knicks starting center, and he's holding the court down defensively for them. Great value. A lot of teams would like to have him at that number, but no one really wants to have him that much more, even though he is doing what he's doing in New York, because he is limited. And you know that, that wasn't really the case back even in 2013. Like Nerlens was considered a number one type pick because of exactly what he's doing right now, but he's still only being valued around three million dollars a year. So it's pretty interesting how the calculus has swung so so quickly yeah no it's it's i mean the book is just full of stories anecdotes illustrations of just yeah how i feel like that that there you cover just compressed time and everything just transformed it was like all this stuff was building up like with the labor deal the new owners it just all converged Um, I, i was curious how has it been for you covering the league during the pandemic. I mean, how is that? Obviously, yeah. you've been writing the book, so that, that's probably kept you busy too, along with all the other writing and reporting you do. But how has that changed someone like you who covers the league closely? How has that changed your job? Or is it kind of the same old, same old? No, it's very different. I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, but I mean, over 30% of the anecdotes and the details I got for this book, I came from locker room access from players during the 2017, 18, 2018, 19, 2019, 20 seasons. Um, so to not be able to be in locker rooms right now really hurts me. Um, it's, it's, it's been like a bummer for sure. I mean, I haven't been to an NBA game in over a year. And the stories I like to do are what's in this book. Like there's a lot of big transactional type stuff, like the Kobe contract extension we talked about earlier. But I mean, I love, I, I, I've always, believed and was taught from a very beginning stage of my journalism education that stories are about people first and foremost. And even though the NBA is about teams and money and whatever comes to like the agent things we're just talking about, all these, all these people are just people and they're, 
there's emotions and friendships and whatever. And there's a lot of little stories about, you know, like the Phoenix Suns on, on the, on the bus at the 2015 trade deadline, they're waiting. There's like 10 minutes left before the deadline. All of a sudden, one by one guys start getting off the bus and saying goodbye because they get traded. Right. Like, <laughs> or the, or the guy from the Suns that Mc, the, the GM McDonough forgets to tell him, was it Christmas? Forgets yeah. to tell him he's made the team. I was like, that is so human. Right. I mean, that's yeah. like, we've all been there. Like, am I still, did I get it? Did I not get it? It was like, Oh, yeah. that was great. Dream drive. And his boss forgot to even tell him he got. Yeah, so, yeah, no. I think, I mean, not being able to have those interactions and get those stories has been a bummer. But fortunately, my work with Bleacher Report this season, um, they really just want me like calling up teams and getting trade rumors and stuff like that. So it's actually been nice, which I don't typically do. Like I typically only like to call people for a big ad. Like I don't like to be always bothering people saying, hey, can you help me out with the story? But it's been nice actually now I'm talking to 10, 15 people on the phone every week um, and I'm mixing it up because I don't like to ask for favors too often from, you know, team people. So it's actually forced me to make these phone calls and, and, and have conversations with guys I might've only seen two or three times a year. Like I'm based in New York. So the average team comes to the city at least two times um, and I'll get lunch with guys or see them at shoot around or at a game. Um, so it's been nice to get on the phone and do these stories but it's it's definitely not the same as going to a game and seeing people around the the courtside apron or in the locker room or back in the in the press room at the at the media buffet like one time like any night you go to a game you might end up with like like Dominique Wilkins and Rick Mahorn were two color commentators for one game I was covering I ended up like having dinner with both of those guys one night like so those those you know happenstance interactions they just don't happen anymore unfortunately but hopefully soon hopefully next year well and and you're totally right i mean again how rich the book is but again with the book coming out may 4th definitely highly recommend everyone your sub stack you started because it's like it's just teeming over with all of these stories and like the different yeah. things you're putting out leading up to it so if you can't wait for the book definitely jump on uh jake's sub stack uh, coming out of the all-star game I guess just maybe the final question is like, yeah, what what are you looking at heading up to the deadline? I know you've been doing a lot of writing for Bleacher Report, like you're saying, kind of look at the Pelicans, um, look at some of the other teams, looking at Kyle Lowry. Like, yeah. kind of what are you just kind of what are you watching right now? What are the things that are most interesting to you the next couple of weeks? What's really interesting is the fact that the shortened season, obviously, COVID has impacted everything. With a lot of teams missing players due to health and safety protocols. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of teams don't really know what they have yet, coupled with the fact that we now have this new 10-team uh, play-in tournament. So we're going to see a lot of teams consider themselves buyers at the trade deadline than typically, which also means we're going to see less teams being sellers. So there's probably going to be, it's probably going to be a seller's market, I would think. And that, that, as, that is not typically the case. Usually it's a buyer's market at the deadline. And that will we could see some teams actually get some pretty good value back from players when teams typically, you know, think, I think back a couple of years ago when Memphis was trying to trade Tyreek Evans, they were holding out for a first round pick and they never got one and they kept him. And then he walked in for agency. Um, right. They could have gotten two seconds, you know, this year, maybe Memphis would have gotten a first for Tyreek. Um, and, you know, Blake Griffin's now at Brooklyn. So that's the first domino to fall. that People are waiting to see. I'm curious what dominoes will fall next. Like Philly's definitely going to make a move. Denver could make a move. We hear Milwaukee, the Clippers, the Lakers, the Heat involved in everybody, but all those four teams don't really, five teams even in Brooklyn, 
they don't really have much to play with in terms of draft capital. And, you know, the, the whole book you know, talks about building your pile of picks, right? So without those teams having that, it'd be, like they're really, they got limited, you know, wiggle room here to improve. So I'm curious what creativity we're going to see from the front offices. And I'm curious if one of the teams I cover is going to win the title. Cause that'd be pretty nice for me. <laughs> that, would be, that, would, that would be a nice change <laughs> for coming from Philadelphia. Well, Jake, thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, Jake's new book built to lose out May 4th, wherever books are sold. Uh, also check out a sub stack and follow him on Twitter. Jake, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. It was a blast. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us at the 3ND Love NBA Podcast. We'll be back next time. But until then, remember, throw it down, big man. This isn't just a great podcast. It's a triumph of the human spirit.